This is an emotional moment. And it's with a great sense of gratitude to God that I stand here today and see so many of you that we've known over the years and been blessed by and been a blessing. And um, what a wonderful testimony this is to, to God's faithfulness over the years. And um, I just want to take this opportunity to thank so many who have come uh, this afternoon to share in this time of remembering God's grace and God's faithfulness to to ECC. And um, I just want to pray together before we uh, spend a little time meditating on God's Word. Father, you are indeed a wonderful, gracious, sovereign, all-powerful God, and we are just in awe today at what you have done in and through and for our congregation and the other congregations that meet at the center. Lord, we, we honor you and we thank you for your grace to us and confidence and kindness to us. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a wonderful little phrase in Scripture that I think aptly describes the history of ECC, which we've been reviewing through the video. It's found in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 9, but I'm going to start reading in verse 8. It says, And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem. Sounds like a bit of a geography lesson, but basically the point the writer is making is this was a long journey that they made in a very uh, short period of time for the time of its history. And then it explains why. It says, for the good hand of his God was on him. And I don't think you can explain what we've just witnessed in the video and what many of us have experienced over the years to ECC, that the good hand of God has been on ECC. But there's another phrase of cause and effect in the very following verse. We say, well, why was the good hand of God on ECC? Why was the good hand of God on Ezra? Well, I just want to introduce you to a historical artifact. These are the handwritten notes, sermon notes, of the very first sermon I ever preached at ECC. Now that means two things. Either I have a fantastic filing system, <laughs> or I need to learn to throw things away. But I need to give you a little context. They're handwritten, torn from a spiral notebook, and uh, we'd been in Abu Dhabi about three days when I preached that sermon. And I we had never visited Abu Dhabi. We had not come on a candidating visit. The church had never met us. We had never met the church. The whole decision had been made through an exchange of faxes and uh, some cassette sermon tapes and a few phone calls. And uh, we arrived, sight unseen. I think it was a little bit like an arranged marriage in which the bride and the groom meet for the first time on the wedding day. 
And I remember saying to the church, I said, you are very brave. You've called us to be your pastor. You don't, didn't even know what we look like. And I remember Ken Riddle, who was the chairman of the board at the time, said, well, you didn't know what we looked like either. And uh, I don't recommend that necessarily as a way to call a pastor. But God's leading was so strong and so uh, convincing both to the church leadership and to us that this was the path that he wanted us to take. The congregation that first Friday was probably about 75 or 80. The church was at a low ebb at that point because the Gulf War had just started, or maybe it hadn't quite started yet, but Saddam Hussein had, in his forces, had invaded Kuwait at the very beginning of August. This was about three weeks later. So many of the families had not returned from summer vacation or or families had been sent home because they were not sure how the security would be in the uh, country in the event of a war. And uh, so there we were, about 80 people in that little nondescript team center that you saw a picture of a few moments ago. And my text for that first sermon is the one we find here in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10. Why was the good hand of God on Ezra? It says, for, because Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And I believe it was Ezra's faithfulness to the word of God that also explains why God's good hand was on him and his little band of travelers and why the good hand of God has been on ECC. And in that first message contained in these sermon notes to that small group of believers, I laid out my priorities as their new pastor. And I made certain promises to them. And I want to review the main points of that message and of that passage together this afternoon. It says, For Ezra had set his heart. It's a very strong phrase in Hebrew. The heart was used in Hebrew culture to describe the whole of the inner person, the affections, the purpose, the will. To set or fix one's heart on something meant to, to give oneself wholly to a task, a purpose, or a goal. And it contains three, at least three elements. It contains commitment, intense, strong dedication to a cause or a task, Certain other synonyms come to mind, such as resolution, determination, firmness, steadfastness, devotion. In fact, the King James Version translates this, Ezra devoted himself to this task. It also contains the idea of priorities, establishing what will come first before other things. And it also contains the element of energy and strength. And in that first message, I remember sharing a, a story about Pavarotti, the great Italian opera singer. Apparently there was a time in his career when he was trying to decide between a career in singing or a career in teaching singing. And it was his father who gave him this advice. If you try to sit on two chairs, you will end up falling between them. For life, you must choose one chair. And for Pavarotti, that meant endless hours of drill and voice exercises as he set his heart on singing and blessed so many people with his voice. Ezra 
set his heart. And I promised in that first ECC message that I would do the same. But what was it that Ezra set his heart on? What was the promise that I was making to ECC? Well, there are three parts to it, each clearly laid out in this text in the the verbal infinitives in the verse. The first one is to study. The root word contains a couple of concepts, to tread or go back and forth over a same area till you've worn it well, as well as the idea of seeking after knowledge or insight, direction, wisdom. In other words, this is not just an endless going back and forth, but this is a going back and forth, looking for answers, looking for wisdom, seeking something in the text. This is the way the New Testament describes it in Paul's instructions to Timothy, his young pastor, protege. 2 Timothy 2.15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I remember some years ago when I was pastoring a small church in Nairobi, Kenya, I had a couple of interns from Scott Theological College who worked with me for a semester. And we had spent one morning preparing a sermon and working through, seeking to understand a text and going to the, you know, just working the text over and over, doing what this verse calls us to do. And I remember as we broke for lunch, one of them said, wow, that's hard work. And study is hard work. But the commitment I made to the church didn't end with study. The second infinitive says to do it or observe it or keep it. Now I'm going to be honest here. This is the one that's the hardest to do. And this is the one that is most often neglected in the life of a pastor. And it's one that I only fulfilled imperfectly. But the challenge is there to study, not for other people, but first for myself. To see what God was saying to me, what he was challenging me with, what he wanted me to obey. And when a pastor or a preacher delivers unlived truth to a congregation, there's great danger. And there's great risk. To preach anything that one is unwilling to live is a dishonest exercise. I remember our seminary president used to challenge us about the dangers of wallowing in unlived truth. And until one is ready and willing to live, not perfectly, not always with success, but desiring above all else to live what one preached, There could be no authentic gospel ministry. And then there's the third element here, to teach, to teach. And the word to teach, literally the the root word is to learn. And it's in the causative form, to cause to learn. That's teaching, which basically means teaching hasn't happened until someone's learned. And that's the challenge to bring the Word of God in a way that learning occurs in those who hear. 
I remember I would get comments from time to time by people in the church, and they'd say, you're more of a teacher than a preacher. And I took that as a compliment. And I hope it meant that they'd learned something from what I was saying. And the key to the whole verse and the promise I made in that first sermon is that all three of these verbs have the same object. To study, to do, and to teach. In Ezra's case, it was the commandments and statutes of the Lord for Israel. The old covenant. Now, I have an advantage over Ezra because I have the whole of the revealed Word of God. I have not only the Old Covenant Scriptures, I have the New Covenant or New Testament Scriptures. And the challenge I have is the one that Jesus described in Matthew 13, 51 and 52. He said to his disciples, have you understood all these things after he told his parables? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. There's value in the old. There's value in the new. And one who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is able to draw from both sources of knowledge. And that was my promise and my commitment to the church, that little group of believers, that there are many things that a church and a pastor can do, good things. We might even say important things. But this was the one thing I said, by God's grace, I will not neglect. There may be times I don't visit you as often as I should. There may be times when I fail to do things that you think are important. But I'm going to have to make some choices from time to time. And when I have to make a choice, I will choose to study, to do, and to teach the word of the Lord. I'm reminded of the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus came to visit in their home. And you've got the story of the two sisters. And, and we're told that Martha was distracted by much serving. And, and Mary sat at Jesus' feet. And Martha came to complain and said, Won't you tell my sister to help me? And Jesus' answer to her was, You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. Now that passage is usually applied on an individual level, and I believe rightfully so. But I think there's also a place, a lesson there for congregations, that there are many things that can distract a congregation and a pastor and a pastoral staff. But there's one thing we must not neglect, and that is to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from his word. You say, but how and where does this happen? And this is where I believe the preacher, the pastor, the teacher, or in Jesus' terminology, the scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven plays a key role. The Ezra's, if you will, of the modern church. Those who devote themselves to teaching and preaching the word of God. In Paul's words to Timothy, he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Every passage, or excuse me, every believer has the right, the privilege, the responsibility to become a student of the Word of God. But there are those who are uniquely gifted, those who are uniquely uh, put in a role where they have the time to give to these efforts in the Word of God, 
and they are to be honored and to be commended in the scripture or in the in the church because of the role the vital role that they play in the church but i want to back up a little bit here and ask or address the question why is this so critical in the life of a congregation why did i make those promises to ECC so many years ago. And I'm just going to cover this quickly because you're familiar with it, but I think it needs to be said. The first reason why it's so vital is because of the Scripture's divine origin. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. 2 Peter 1.21 and 22 says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now we live in a world that if they pay any attention to the Bible at all, they will tell us that the Bible is simply a record of man's thoughts about God that have evolved over centuries and generations. That's not what the Scripture says about itself. The Scripture says all Scripture comes from God. And if it comes from God, then we need to give the necessary attention to it. It has that place of authority in our lives. And that brings us to the second reason for this commitment to Scripture, because of the Scripture's timeless reliability, relevance, and authority. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now, we live in a world in which all the things we thought we knew are being challenged and and, and, and obvious things are being questioned, and, and all of knowledge seems to be on sift, shifting sands, and, and where do we go to stand on something that's reliable, something that doesn't change? And for the believer, that is the Word of God. It's the one thing that does not change. He hasn't changed his mind about anything. His Word stands forever. And it's not for us to edit it. It's not for us to change it. It's for us to pay attention to it and to obey it. The third reason for my commitment is because of the Scripture's promised usefulness and delights. Now we see this in the second half of 2 Timothy 3.16, that the Scripture is not only God-breathed, but it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's what we need. It's what we need to hear. But the Scripture is not only useful, but it's also full of delights. There are numerous metaphors or word pictures for the Scripture in the, in the Scripture itself. It's sweeter than honey, we're told. More precious than gold. A tree or a man planted who meditates upon the Word of God is like a tree planted by a stream of water. Other metaphors that come to mind, this one isn't a scriptural one, but Susan Owino, a member of this congregation for some years, used to call it fresh bread. She'd come to me after a sermon, she says, Pastor, you fed us with fresh bread this morning. There's a delight in the Scripture as it is open to us that brings joy to the heart and delight to our minds. And there's another metaphor that's used repeatedly in Scripture, and that's 
describing God's word as light. Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's tough to walk in the darkness, isn't it? You can trip, you can stumble, you can fall. You can hurt yourself. What we need is light to direct our path. And God's word is that light. I'm going to come back to that promise or that one in just a moment. But the fourth reason why I made that commitment to the church and why I think it is so vital to every congregation is because of the vulnerable nature of the church. And here's why I say that. In Acts 20, 28 to 30, Paul was giving his final instructions to the elders of the church of Ephesus. And he says there, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now from those couple verses, two things stand out. One is that the church is incredibly valuable. It says it was obtained with his own blood. Jesus really loves the church. Loved the church enough to shed his own blood for it. Loves it enough to call it his bride, his body, his temple. Jesus loves the church. And yet, the church is extremely vulnerable. The images here are rather graphic. Wolves among sheep. They say that a wolf can slaughter an entire flock of sheep in one night. They don't even bother eating it. They just go through and slaughter. Sheep are vulnerable to wolves. And Paul says wolves are coming. And they're not only going to come from outside. He says some of them are going to come from within. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to teach twisted things. Now how do you stand against Twisted teaching. You have to have straight teaching. And that's the call that I took on as God's call on my life. Now my commitment was not only to preaching in general, but to a specific kind of preaching. What is commonly described as expository preaching. It involves typically preaching systematically through books of the Bible, explaining them section by section, placing them in their biblical, historical, cultural context, and then applying them to the present realities and challenges of the audience of the congregation. You might say, why was my commitment to expository preaching specifically? And surely it's not the only kind of preaching. And of course it's not. But I want to show you why I believe it represents or makes sense for it to be the steady diet of preaching in a healthy, growing church. 
Remember, I promised to come back to the metaphor of the Scripture as light. And if we go back to Psalm 119 again and move to verse 130, I like these words, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And I think that phrase is a great description of expository preaching. The unfolding of God's words. And that's what I tried to do, what I set myself to do each week as I prepared to preach. And one of the words I use, not so much unfolding, but I used to use it, probably overused it. And I'd say, let's unpack this verse. Let's unpack this passage. What's going on here? And that's really saying, let's unfold this. There are layers here that we can understand more if we dig a little deeper and take the pieces apart and maybe put them together and look at it in different ways. And the the key in expository preaching is unpacking things in such a way that the meaning and message of God's words become the content of the preaching, not the preacher's own ideas or the preacher's own agenda. I remember hearing a lecture on preaching by the famous British preacher John Stott. And he used the image for the preacher. He says, the preacher is a bridge between the world, language, and cultures of the Bible and the world, language, and cultures of his audience. He says, it's easy to be relevant if you don't care about being biblical. And it's easy to be biblical if you don't care about being relevant. But the challenge of expository preaching is to do both. To be faithful to the biblical context, biblical truth, and making it clear, unfolding it in ways that brings, as the scripture says, understanding to the simple. So that it makes sense in terms of their life and their situation. And that was the challenge that I found and sought to meet in my preaching. So that God's words truly become a light to the path. Not just a light somewhere in the darkness, but one that just shines on the feet and shines on the path in front of us. And then we come to the fifth and I believe the most important reason for expository preaching. And that is that effective expository or biblical preaching points consistently and ultimately to the person and work of Christ. That every message and the unfolding of God's words challenges the preacher to set each passage into the larger framework of God's revelation. And God's revelation is centered on and points ultimately always to Christ and the gospel. You haven't unfolded it enough until you find Christ in your text. Give me, let me give you an example. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Must be linked with John 1.1-3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So there's Jesus in the opening verse of the Scripture. 
All the way back in Genesis 3.15, the first promise of a Savior, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's Jesus in chapter 3 of Genesis, the seed or offspring of the woman who will bruise the head of the serpent. Now it's a story that won't end until the end of Revelation where you've got the, the great serpent and Jesus declares his final victory. And that story from Genesis to Revelation is the work of the preacher to take each text, faithful to it, faithful to its context, and yet setting it in such a way that you see where it fits in that larger story of Scripture. And I could go on and on. Good expository preaching, faithfully set in its context, will consistently lead a congregation back to Christ and his gospel, the incarnation, the cross, and the resurrection as the only hope for a lost and dying world. The theme of this service today is 50 years of gospel witness. Now, I want to make a clarification here. When I say that every message is a gospel message or should be centered on the gospel, that does not mean that every message is specifically a salvation message. But it does mean that every message recognizes that Christ and his gospel is central to all of life. Of course it's central for the lost in need of repentance and justification and the forgiveness of Christ's blood. And that should be a regular theme of gospel preaching. But the gospel is also necessary for the struggling believer in need of the power of Christ and his working, the working of His Spirit in the pursuit of sanctification and a holy life. There are people who love to come to the book of Romans and say, I want to jump to chapter 12 and talk about all this practical stuff about how I should live. And I say to them, until you understand chapters 1 to 11, you haven't got a hope of living out chapter 12 and following. It's the gospel that gives the power to live a new life not only to be forgiven of our sins, but to have the power of the resurrected Christ living within us to live as he has called us to live. And the gospel is the necessary message to the discouraged, depressed, struggling believer who's got life's problems just flooding over him, needs to know the hope of the gospel. To know that Jesus wins and that the hope of the gospel lies there for all of us. And so, in every element of the life, every aspect of our salvation, the gospel is what we need to hear. The larger story of what God is doing in his church. So those were the reasons that I made the commitment and the promise I made to ECC back in August of 1990. And for 25 years, I did my best with God's help to keep that promise to feed you with fresh bread every week. And when we were preparing for our departure and the church began the search process for the one who would take my place, they held a number of focus groups with different aspects of the congregation to find out what their priorities were in looking for the next pastor. And I found it 
immensely rewarding and a great joy that the one quality, the one qualification that they put above all the others was that he should be a man who was devoted to expository preaching. Because it meant that not only was expository preaching a part of my ministry DNA, but it had now become a part of the DNA of ECC. And that commitment was certainly borne out under Pastor Jeremy, and now under the ministry of Pastor Aubrey, the other ministries, pastors on the team. And my prayer is it may long remain so, and I believe if it is, then the good hand of our God will continue to be on ECC for the next 50 years. God bless.